Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about terrifying treehouses, dastardly wardrobes, and insatiable insects. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring our frightening fiction to life are voice talents Ryan Taylor of the Demon Creep YouTube channel, Jason Hill, host of the Horror Hill podcast, and Eric Peabody, the current frontrunner in our 2019 Evil Idol voice acting competition, with the final round beginning the first week of June. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Our first tale tonight is written by author Trevin Nichols and is performed by Ryan Taylor. In it, a doting father builds his daughter the perfect treehouse, putting all the care into it you would expect from a loving parent. There's just one problem. Someone or something else 
has decided to take up residence in the new home away from home, and it doesn't want to play nice. Without further ado, I present to you, there's something wrong with my daughter's treehouse. It took me nearly three months to build this mansion of a treehouse for my daughter. It had slides and swings, windows and doors, ladders and steps. It had it all. Shit, I even insulated it and had power outlets, heating and cooling. This monstrous structure was a beautiful mix between a full-fledged apartment and a McDonald's play place. I was incredibly proud of it. But I must say that it fully solidified the truth in her words whenever my wife told me that I sometimes way overdo things. Truth be told, it only made her more right since our daughter was only four years old. By the time I finished building the treehouse, there were only a few nice days left in the fall before snow hit, and my daughter only got those few days to play outside and in my creation. Even though I did install heating in it, my daughter wasn't a big fan of going outside to play in the snow, unless we turned it into a big event to go sledding somewhere. This was slightly disappointing to me, but she was only four, so I understood. When the snow melted and the temperature climbed again, she was out there playing in it almost constantly. This made me happy to see how excited she was with what I had made for her. For about a week, it was even difficult to get her to come back inside to eat and sleep. There had been a couple of nights I had to go out and drag her back in the house for bath time and bed. It was times like these I was happy I had made the treehouse big enough and sturdy enough for me to venture up there. It was plenty big enough, that was for sure. I had made the inside 12 feet by 16 feet with an 8 foot ceiling. I secretly had planned that size so that if for some reason my daughter didn't like it, I could just turn it into a cool sort of man cave. A month went by with her out there, spending nearly every waking moment playing either inside or on the swings and slides. Then one day in the middle of the afternoon, my daughter came screaming out of the treehouse and into the house. Daddy, Daddy, I don't like it. Whoa, 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 little one, what's wrong? I said as she barreled into my legs, nearly causing my knees to buckle. My treehouse, it's scary. Seriously? It's been your favorite place for months. Why is it all of a sudden scary? I asked with a little more annoyance in my voice than I intended. I saw a scary man in there. He was hurt, she said. Wait, what did you say? Is there some... Just stay here, I commanded as I ran out the door and toward the treehouse. As my hand touched the doorknob at the top of the steps, my heart jumped for a second and the thought of how dumb it was charging inside with no real plan if there truly is someone in there. Still, I turned the handle and burst into the room of the treehouse. Nothing. Various toys and Barbies on the floor, a kitty couch, and a couple small beanbag chairs were the only things in the room. I'd like to say that I searched the place, but that was literally it. There wasn't much searching. It was all one big room, so... Search complete. I saw no man inside, hurt, or otherwise, save for myself. I walked back out the door and back into the house. 
As I walked through the back door, I found my daughter in the next room over, sitting patiently just watching the back door with her thumb in her mouth. Who is he? She said to me as soon as she saw me walk through the door. Who is who? I didn't see anyone out there. What did he look like? He's gone? She replied, completely ignoring my question and running past me back outside. What the fuck just happened? I thought to myself as I watched her climb the steps and enter the treehouse from the kitchen window. I mentioned the odd experience to my wife a little later that day. She seemed only slightly concerned, and we both chalked it up to her exceptional imagination. That night, as we sat eating around the table, my wife began to ask our daughter about what had happened. Daddy told me you saw someone in your treehouse today. Did they ever come back? Um, no. What did the man look like? Do you know how he got into your treehouse? He was scary. His mouth looked weird. And looked like he had lots of owies in it. Do you know how he got into the treehouse? I chimed in, wondering if I was going to need to upgrade the security around the house. I don't know. I was just playing on the swings and then I came in to play with my toys and he was there. So... He was already hiding in the treehouse? My wife asked. No. He was hiding like in here. She said, pointing to her head. My wife and I locked eyes at the sound of this and both let out a sigh of relief, assuming that it meant it really had been her imagination. Everything went much more smoothly and calmly the rest of the night. We went another week without any thought or mention of the situation. Regardless of the lack of hearing anything more about it, I still felt uncomfortable, and the day after, I decided to move the backyard security camera, pointing it at the treehouse as best I could. Sadly, with how much my daughter played back there, I wouldn't be able to set the motion detection on it without it sending alerts every five minutes. In the middle of the second week following the unusual afternoon, my daughter again ran into the house screaming about a man in the treehouse again. This time, I immediately ran out to the treehouse and bursting through the door I was again met with nothing, more than an empty room. Frustrated and annoyed at the situation, I turned and began to leave the treehouse. Just as I passed through the doorway, behind me I heard a crack and a thud, as if something had been knocked over or broken. I spun around and looked through the doorway from outside the treehouse. I saw nothing. I thought to walk back in and check a second time. I really wish I hadn't. As my foot crossed the threshold of the door, back into the treehouse, everything changed. The light from the sun coming through the windows vanished. Rusted steel and concrete surrounded me, and everything was bathed in an ominous deep red glow. An overhead light flickered and popped, giving me only quick random glimpses of the horror I was now surrounded by. Nearly every surface looked like it had been coated in a thick layer of sticky, half-coagulated blood. Chains hung from the ceiling and ended with the same hooks you would imagine at a slaughterhouse. A rusted steel table sat against the wall with various crude rusted tools on it. The place sort of looked like an abandoned warehouse or meat locker of some sort. A clank rang out behind me and I turned around, half expecting to see the doorway out into my backyard. I didn't see the door I was hoping for, but I did see a massive man, nearly seven foot tall and looked to be solid muscle. 
He was shirtless but covered in scars. With the dim and flickering light, I couldn't tell if he was black or just completely covered head to toe in dried blood. The lips of the Goliath were missing, and its teeth had been ripped out and replaced with rusted nails, screws, and razor blades crudely inserted at odd angles into its gums, and blood seemed to be constantly running from the nightmare's dental work. A giant scar ran down its face, and large stitches using what looked like thick yarn or twine drenched in blood held both the scar and one of its eyes closed. The large man raised its arms out to its sides, and I noticed that huge nails and screws were also sticking out of its skin in random locations. Blood dripped from each place a nail or screw had been protruding from his skin. He lowered his head as his arms became stretched out fully from his shoulders, and let out a strained and wheezy attempt at a yell. I guess that its vocal cords had either been severely damaged or removed. I could see rage rise in its one good eye as it began to run toward me. Oh shit! What the fuck? I yelled as I turned and ran as fast as I could. The dim and flickering light caused me to slip and stumble over hooks and chains laying on the floor that I had not noticed before. The man let out another wheezy yell as it chased after me. I screamed and ran. Stumble and roll. Scramble to my feet. Scream and continue running. I hit the wall clumsily when I tried to look back to see how much the creature had gained on me. It was getting closer and closer. I ran and felt along the wall just trying to find my way in the nearly perfect dark that I had been surrounded in. The huge behemoth of a man was getting closer and closer. Finally I found it. A door handle or a crash bar really. I slammed into it and luckily it burst open and I fell through the doorway. Quickly I scrambled to my feet and as I stood fully up and began to run, I realized I was outside. I was once again in my backyard. Holy shit, I exclaimed, looking back at the treehouse, my heart pounding furiously inside my chest and out of breath. My brain had insurmountable trouble in trying to comprehend what had just happened. Was it a hallucination? Some sort of waking stress-induced nightmare? I couldn't truly grasp what I had seen or what I had just went through. I walked cautiously back into the house. A constant feel of uneasiness flooded my body. My wife standing at the back door saw the look on my face and asked if I had seen anything in the treehouse. I nervously chuckled at her choice of words, but not knowing how to explain, I just told her no I hadn't. My daughter wanted to go back out the next day and I refused to let her go out there alone. When we got out there, I stepped through the doorway first, telling my daughter to stand back and wait for a second. Nothing happened. I stood just outside the doorway and let my daughter enter while I scanned the room looking for anything out of the ordinary. She seemed completely unaffected as she walked in and instantly began playing on the floor with her toys. As I saw this, I decided to merely shrug off my previous experience as my own temporary psychosis. I try my best not to be an overprotective parent, and I don't believe in the paranormal. But I can't get the images of that afternoon out of my head. It makes me wonder if there is any truth to it or if there is truly something wrong. A few days later, I was standing in the kitchen loading the dishwasher and I heard a scream radiate from the backyard. Worried and confused, I looked over to confirm that yes, my daughter was still in the next room playing. Nervous, I opened the back door and began to walk toward the treehouse. From the ground, I called out, not wanting to enter the structure. Uh, hey, 
Is someone in there? I stuttered with anxiety. No reply. Hello? Is anyone there? The only response was another scream. This one was much less woman in pain and more guttural demonic beast. What the... I mumbled under my breath, but was interrupted by another scream. This one back to sounding more like a woman in pain. Upset at the idea, I realized I was going to have to go up in there to get any answers. My body trembled as I forced myself up the steps, my brain screaming at me in reluctance to enter. I held my breath and closed my eyes as my hand grasped and turned the handle to the door. I opened the door and after a few seconds exhaled and opened my eyes. There was nothing. It was just as my daughter had left it a few days ago. Holy shit. I am completely losing my mind. I said to myself as I stood there looking through the door into the essentially empty room. I really need to get my shit together. This is getting embarrassing. I turned to walk back into the house and the corner of my eye caught something inside the room. I looked back and recognized a small stuffed pink squid laying on the floor next to the couch. Damn it child, I told you not to bring your stuffed animals out here. I said to myself under my breath as I began to walk in to grab it. Again, as I stepped through the doorway the light faded. The red glow and flickering light returned and screams bellowed out around me. Excruciating, horrific screams of pain filled the air. I was back in that hellish warehouse once again. My first thought was to run for the door again, but looking in that direction, it was gone. The place that held my escape was now nothing but flat, blood-covered concrete wall. Anxiety and fear rose in my throat as another scream flooded the room, and I looked around to find its source. On a table in the middle of the room lay a woman. The giant of a man was on top of her, straddling her. Her chest and ribs had been cut and ripped from her body, exposing her organs. A huge rusted knife was stabbed into the side of her neck, and I had no idea how it was possible she was still alive, let alone still screaming. The man was taking handfuls of her intestines and pulling them from her body. He was wrapping her organs around himself and stroking himself with them. He looked towards the sky and with his mouth gaping that loud, guttural yell vibrated the room. After a few strokes he would throw the chunk of intestine or another organ across the room. It would splat as it hit the wall or floor and he would grab another handful and rip it from her open chest. Completely frozen in shock at the horrific sight, I watched as the woman's head turned towards me and screamed again. You could already see the vacant look of death in her eyes. Just as she looked toward me, a chunk of stomach came flying at me and splatted at the ground near my feet. He grabbed her heart and ripped it from her chest, lifting her entire torso off the table before the artery snapped and her lifeless body slammed back down. He yelled out again as he brought himself to orgasm and shot a black tar into the open-filled cavity that had been the woman's chest. I nearly passed out from the pure shock and disgust, but instead I snapped out of my trance and began to run. Not sure where to go, I just knew I had to get out of there. Again, tripping and stumbling over various things on the ground, I found the wall on the opposite side of the room far from the light. I began to feel around in total darkness for a door. 
I heard a yell and turned back. In the dim light, I saw the Goliath of a man bite into the woman's flesh with his rusted screws and nails for teeth, then flip over the table. He yelled out again and just as he looked like he was going to start to look for me, I found a door. I pressed and slammed against the door, but it just wouldn't open. The failed medical experiment of a man heard my attempt and began to walk towards me. I began to panic, slamming harder and harder into the door. Still, to no avail. It just wouldn't budge. He continued running at me, getting closer and closer. I took steps away and threw my body into the door and still barely, any movement. He got to me and tackled me into the door. As we both slammed into it, the impact broke the door free. As we fell through the doorway, he disintegrated and disappeared while I fell backward down the steps, landing on my back in the grass of my yard. My body filled with pain, I slowly got up staring at the open door in utter disbelief. I stood staring for what felt like an eternity before my wife came out and asked me what was wrong. I did my best to explain the horrific images as best I could, and once I was done, she ran back into the house yelling something about having a plan. My wife is the much more superstitious one of the two of us, so she decided to call a friend that would know what to do. I had no idea what was truly going on. Reluctantly, I agreed to have this crystal-wielding hippie witch doctor show up to our house. A few days later, she showed up. And I say showed up because after pulling into our driveway, she refused to get out of the car and just called my wife from the driveway. My wife put her phone on speaker so I could hear the conversation. Something is very wrong here, she said. I feel a presence stronger than I've ever felt before. Well, can you come burn some sage or something to get rid of it? My wife said. No, absolutely not. I'm not leaving my car. I need to go, and you should get hold of someone else to clear that evil spirit from your property, she replied. Can you come in the house and talk to us? It seems to only be in the treehouse in the back, I said, trying to get as much time for answers as I could. No, it's not. I'm sorry, is all she said before the call ended and we watched her drive off away from our house. What was that supposed to mean? What do we do now? I asked my wife. I don't know. That was the only person I could think of. Well, at least there will be no more playing in the treehouse, okay? I responded. Yeah, I'll try to look online for someone else to help, she said as she walked off toward the office. Sure, I'm going to go block the door to the treehouse so she just can't wander in there, I said walking toward the back door and motioning to upstairs where our daughter slept. Avoiding it altogether seemed to work well enough. I was disappointed at not being able to use what I'd put so much time into, but it had been a month since we had any problems with it, so... Oh well. During that month, my wife had messaged and called numerous people she found on the internet, trying to get at least an explanation for what was happening in our backyard. All her effort hardly got any results, most of the people never responded, some refused to help or even investigate, and the ones she got to come to the house did the same thing as the first lady. They either refused to come inside or just drove past it without stopping at all. Finally, I had had it with all of this and told myself that it was all bullshit and there was nothing actually wrong. I went out to the treehouse and unblocked the door, took a deep breath and walked inside. 
nothing. I was perfectly fine. A few spiders had made some impressive webs inside, but besides that it was all fine. Ha! See, I fucking knew it! I yelled out. Just to prove it to myself, I even walked over to the doorway and jumped back and forth across the threshold a few times. With no effect. Hell yeah. I was right, it was all in my head, I thought to myself as I walked back inside. It's fine, I told you. It would be okay. I said to my wife as I walked in. I then told her what I had just done out there and she did nothing but give me a concerned look. I really don't think that was a very good idea. What if you just pissed whatever it is off, she said. Oh, whatever. There's nothing out there. It was all in my head. I'll prove it. I replied overconfidently as I began to walk back outside. When I got back out to the treehouse and up the steps to the door, I looked back at my wife standing, staring at me from the back porch. See? Nothing. I said just before walking through the door. As I stepped through, everything changed again. The darkness was back, and that haunting red glow that seemed to be coming from everywhere and nowhere at the same time. The chains with hooks, draped down from the ceiling, held decayed and naked bodies this time. A few of them swung back and forth, as if someone had just run into them as they walked past. Every one of them had its chest torn open with their organs either missing or spilled out onto the floor. From the far side of the warehouse room, I heard a scream followed by the moans and yell of the massive demon of a man I had run into the other times. Oh fuck, I whispered to myself, realizing I had seriously messed up. The smell of rot and decay was overwhelming, and I nearly threw up as I pushed past the bodies, making my way hopefully toward a wall and some sort of doorway out of here. Each time I pushed against one of the hanging bodies, something would fall from them. Various body parts and organs fell out or broke off, hitting the floor with thuds and splats. The sound made me flinch every time. I made my way slowly through all the bodies for what seemed like an eternity before I came to an opening. I had been traveling in the wrong direction and it led me right to the beast. I could see it between two of the swinging corpses different this time. It looked as though it had grown at least a foot taller, bigger, in every aspect including all the rusted nails and screws, seemed to have changed to the size of long, sharp railroad spikes. Its muscles now completely oversized, bulged and dripped with blood, both from the various impaled spikes in his skin and from the splatter of his victims. His jaw had become more pronounced and the rusted screws and razor blades he had in place of teeth were much bigger. He also now had large, rusted metal, bloodied horns that looked like twisted rebar jutting from the top of his head. I caught the horrified look from the man laying naked on the table, just before the beast grabbed his skin at the top of his chest and ripped it down and away from his body, like tearing off a shirt. The beast looked towards the sky and dangled the skin over his face, letting the blood drip all over him before dropping the skin into his mouth and swallowing it whole. The man on the table began to scream in pain, but his cries were cut short as the beast leaned down and bit into the man's throat. Somehow still alive and alert, all the man could do was sputter blood from the gaping wound where his throat used to be. 
My heart felt like it was going to burst through my chest. It was beating so hard and so fast. I couldn't have held my eyes open any wider in terror. All I wanted to do was look away and run, but the horror of what I was seeing rooted me to the spot and I felt paralyzed. The beast roared in the man's face, and then began to bellow a deep and haunting sound I could only describe as some sort of demonic laugh. It got louder as it again looked toward the sky, and after a few seconds it suddenly snapped its head back and ripped both arms from the man's body at once, sending arcs of blood flying through the air. It threw one arm off into the darkness and took a huge bite out of the other before also throwing it away. The man, now having no way to make any noise, just sputtered more blood from his throat in response to the pain. I watched on in shock, knowing I really needed to get the fuck out of there as the beast leaned in and seemed to study the man's face. The beast's thick black saliva dripping onto him as he held his gaze, mere inches apart. Another roar exploded from the creature's mouth, and my shock suddenly broke. I began to move as quickly and quietly as I could through the bodies in the opposite direction desperately, looking for a wall or door. The sound of ripping came from behind me, and shortly after I was hit in the back by part of a leg with a huge bite taken out. There wasn't much of the man on the table left, and I knew that meant I was very quickly running out of time before he would be looking for someone else to put on that table next. Now covered in blood and viscera, from pushing through all the corpses, I finally made it to a wall. Sadly, I found no door and began to run down the wall. My fingers slid along it, hoping to feel a door. In my panic, I ran straight into another wall as I came to the corner of the room. As I hit the wall with a loud thud and fell back, another roar emitted from the center of the room. I stood back up and placing my hand on the new wall, began to run down it. My footsteps making so much noise now as I panicked, running along the wall. I heard chains begin to swing and I knew that the beast was on the move. Shit, shit, shit. I mumbled to myself as I ran. I smashed face first into another wall, another corner, and still no door. Standing back up again, I turned and made my way down the third wall. My face and body hurt so badly from slamming into two walls without even slowing down. As I ached, I ran, my fingers still sliding along the wall. I felt the wall shake and a roar erupted through the air. The beast must have just slammed into the same wall I was running along. Not thinking it was even possible, my panic rose even higher. Then I felt it. A door frame. I stopped suddenly and felt all around it. It was another crash bar handle and I stepped back and kicked with all my might at the bar. My heart racing as I began to just barely make out on the red glow. Bodies on chains swinging as something was tossing them aside as it came directly for me. I kicked at the crash bar a third time and the door flew open as if someone had opened it from the other side. Before my foot made contact, the force of my kick caused me to fall forward through the suddenly opened doorway and I came tumbling down the steps to the treehouse landing in the grass. My wife let out a scream as I came flying through the doorway and ran to me as soon as I hit the ground at the bottom of the steps. What the fuck just happened? Why are you covered in blood? Are you okay? Should I call the ambulance? I looked down at my body and she was right. I was still covered in all of the blood and guts I'd picked up, pushing through all of the hanging bodies. Fuck this. I exclaimed as my wife helped me to my feet and I hobbled off to the garage. 
My wife stood at the bottom of the steps staring up at the door to the treehouse as I came back from the garage carrying a gas can. I told my wife to move out of the way and to grab a lighter as I started pouring gasoline all over the treehouse as best I could without stepping inside again. I poured half of the can everywhere I could reach and threw the other half, can and all, through the doorway into the treehouse. Still not really knowing what was going on, my wife stood in the grass holding a box of matches, and as I returned to her side, I took them out of her hand. I struck one match and dropped it back in the box. The rest of the matches lit as I threw it up onto the top of the steps next to the door. We stood next to each other and watched as the treehouse quickly turned into a raging fireball. It was nearly just a pile of ash and scorched earth before the fire department was called and showed up. When they did arrive, I held them back making sure there would be nothing left of the treehouse. That was nearly a year ago now. Grass has grown back over the charred spot in the yard where the treehouse once stood. The fire marshal had lots of questions about what had happened, but I just told him I must have put in some bad wiring that caused the fire. I don't think anyone would have believed me anyway if I told them what had really happened with it and why I did it. It's been peaceful around the house since that all went down. But my daughter just came running up to me a few minutes ago. She was yelling about a scary man in her toy room. I'll buy her new toys. But I'm going to call the moving company. We are leaving. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed There's Something Wrong With My Daughter's Treehouse, as written by Trevin Nichols and performed by Ryan Taylor. If you enjoyed Ryan's performance, do us a favor and check him out on his YouTube channel, Demon Creep, where he's featuring multiple high-quality narrations of the creepy variety each and every week. And leave him a kind word and a comment if you enjoy his content, letting him know you discovered him here on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. It would mean a lot to both of us. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by Jeff Sturdivant and brought to life by voice actor Jason Hill, host of the Horror Hill podcast, also part of our amazing network of storytelling programs. You can check it out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are found. In tonight's tale... We'll meet a gentleman who discovers a suit in the closet of his new apartment that he just can't seem to part with. That's got some secrets to tell. 
Without further ado, I present to you the Black Suit. Mattress yoked over his shoulders like a man condemned to bear it. Jack Stewart made his way up the final flight of stairs to the fifth floor of the Irving Gardens apartment building. From his pocket dangled the green key fob to his new studio. He dropped the mattress in front of the door, apartment 514, and stuck the key in the corroded old doorknob. It was 5 p.m., a ray of dwindling sunlight cutting down the wall from the window at the end of the hallway. By dark, he should be completely moved in. It was only the bed, a handful of bags, and a celebratory case of bud. He dragged the mattress inside and dropped it in the corner where he figured he'd set up camp. The hollow thump of an empty room. The occasion seemed diffused with a kind of sweet loneliness he both cherished and dreaded. For the first time ever, he was completely on his own. Solitude. Independence. Twenty minutes later, he was ascending the stairs with the last of his bags slung over his shoulder. These, he dropped in a pile by the mattress and opened one to fish out his pillow. He dropped the pillow on the bed and lay down on his back. Looking around, he tried to familiarize himself with the cracks in the bowed plaster ceilings and walls. Warped woodwork. Painted over so heavily as to fill in the bevels. Somewhere under all that latex was certainly lead. Old transgressions. Buried forever. After a while, he got up and inspected the bathroom. It looked to have been upgraded sometime in the 70s. He scrutinized the corroded chrome fixtures and flaky grout between the floor tiles. He turned the toilet's flush lever, but nothing happened. Under the lid of the tank, he saw the chain connecting the lever and flapper had snapped. No luxury accommodations were the Irving Gardens apartments, but for one dollar per square foot of personal space, it was surely a bargain. Whatever it took, he would make it livable. Jack went back to the main room, took a beer out of the case and popped the top. He began unpacking his things. His only furniture was a table, two chairs and a dresser. He tucked his shirts and pants into the bottom drawers and his socks and underwear on top. There was a closet between the front door and the bathroom with a dressing mirror hung on the door. He took his coat to the closet, hoping the previous tenant had left him a hanger or two. When he opened it, though, he found more than just a hanger. There was a suit hanging inside, a black jacket and matching pants. That's interesting. He unhooked the suit and brought it out to have a look. He was no expert on formal wear, but he thought the suit looked pretty nice, if not a little out of style. Fine-looking fabric, whatever it was. He checked for the make, but there were no labels in either the collar or the pants. Feeling faintly silly, he brought the jacket to his face and sniffed. It looked brand new, but was still a little musty from closet time. Must have been in there for quite a while. Jack hung the suit back up, folded his own jacket, and tucked it up on the top shelf. He fished the business card out of his pocket, the one Al gave him, along with his room key earlier in the day. Al was the superintendent, an ex-prize fighter and lifelong handyman in his 70s. He'd been living and maintaining this building for 40 years. There was a good chance he'd laid down a lot of that lead paint himself. He'd lost his wife 35 years ago, he'd said, and lived here alone ever since. He must know who the suit belonged to. 
it was also a good excuse to summon him about the minor toilet problem. Jack leaned against the closet door and dialed Al's number. This is Al. Uh, it's Jack. The guy in 514? Aye. Let me guess. The toilet. Jack chuckled. So you already know about it. Well, I got to get to the hardware store. I was going to quick fix it with a pull chain for the closet light, but I thought better of it. Hey, uh, speaking of the closet, what's the story with the suit in there? Do you know? Right, aye. The suit. Forgot to tell you about that. After a little weird pause, Al cleared his throat. Just leave it be, if it's all the same to you. Whose is it? Well, it isn't exactly anybody's. Just think it's part of the apartment. You know what I mean? Like part of the apartment's history? Another pause, this one a bit longer. Kind of like that. If you could just leave it be, I'd appreciate it. You don't bother it, and it won't bother you. Satisfied? He was anything but satisfied. Al's response had only made him curious, but the conversation was getting uncomfortable, so he decided to let it go. Fair enough, Jack said. Thanks, buddy. I'll get to the store tomorrow. Probably pick up a bunch of them chains. Seems like everyone's a-rusting up. Hard water and all that, you know? Ha! Gotcha, Jack said. Thanks, Al. Jack hung up. He polished off the beer and uncapped a second. Nothing like a few drinks to make you feel more at home, even in a hundred-year-old studio with a mysterious suit in a closet. A suit that wouldn't bother him if he didn't bother it. What a mysterious thing to say about a suit. A few beers later and he was hooking up his VCR to the TV. A box set of Columbo episodes to continue the evening's mystery theme. He unpacked his toiletries, showered, and brushed his teeth. He piled his luggage to make an impromptu sofa and settled in to watch TV. By his side, the empty beer bottles accumulated. Three. Four. Six. Eight. The sweet sense of loneliness, turning only to sweet. Three episodes into the first season of Columbo, Jack was snoring soundly into a pile of linens. Jack woke sometime in the night with an odd sense of foreboding. It was quiet in the city streets below. Yellow arc sodium lamplight cast a strange, long shadow across the floor and onto the wall. He turned his head. He froze. There, in front of the window, stood the form of a headless man. It took him a moment to recognize what he was looking at. It was the suit. The weird old suit from the closet. Standing there like someone was wearing it. Like it was looking out the window. Am I dreaming? Hallucinating? He watched silently, both he and the suit unmoving. Had to be a dream. A drunken, exhausted dream brought on by his uneasiness in the new apartment. But no, he was wide awake. That left hallucinating. Was he a schizo all of a sudden? Should he add that to his list of problems? Or was it a ghost? There is no fucking way, he said. Seizing on a moment of courage, he rolled out of bed and made for the suit. Whether he meant to grab it or tackle it, he didn't even know. He was 21 years old and he wasn't going to be spooked like a little kid just because he was alone in a new place. He dashed for it. But by the time he got to the window, the suit was lying on the floor, its ghostly contents apparently emptied. 
He just stood there for a minute, half relieved, half confused, looking down at the crumpled heap. He checked his watch. 3.15 a.m. Don't bother the suit, and it won't bother you, huh? Jack didn't know what the hell had just happened, but this much he did know. The suit bothered him. Jack gathered it up, holding it like something soiled. He opened the door and walked down the hall and stuffed the suit into the trash chute. He shut the door and went back to the apartment and washed his hands in the sink. Feeling silly for doing so, he examined the room for any ghostly ephemera he might have missed. Satisfied, he took one more beer from the case and stood drinking it by the window. He looked outside, saw the dark silhouette of the meat plant on the edge of town, the blinking radio tower, the old billboard overlooking the highway near the police outpost. What the hell had just happened? He set the empty beer bottle on the windowsill and went back to bed. Eventually, he fell asleep. When Jack woke up, the sun was strong in the window. His head throbbed. He checked his watch. 11.30 a.m. It was a minute before last night's episode came to mind. The whole thing felt like a drunken fever dream. How drunk had he been, anyway? Turning to look, he counted the empty beer bottles arranged like bowling pins next to the mattress. All right, so I must have been pretty drunk. Jack peeled himself off the mattress and went to the closet and opened it. There was the suit, hanging where he left it yesterday. Just as he thought, the whole thing had been a drunken dream. In the wake of it, though, the suit still gave him the creeps. What was it about that thing? Jack showered and dressed and emerged on city streets in search of a strong cup of coffee. At the local coffee shop around the corner, he saw a familiar face behind a newspaper. It was Al, the super. Hey, Al, Jack said. Al looked up from his paper. Hey, a buddy. I'll be there later to fix the flapper. Everything else okay so far? Slept pretty bad my first night, but I guess that's to be expected. Ah, me too, Al said. Got woke up round 3.15 by someone slamming the trash chute. Why on earth someone need to take out the trash at 3 in the morning? It's a mystery to me. Wasn't you then, were it, buddy? No, Jack said. Not me. My apartment's right under there. Work the trash chute that late and you're sure to wake me up. Something to keep in mind. Uh, I'll keep it in mind. Good, Al said. As for the toilet, just give me an hour or two. That's fine, Jack said. Al returned to his paper and Jack sat at the bar and ordered coffee. He gazed down at the sports section a previous diner had left behind, but he wasn't reading. He was replaying last night's dream in his mind, wherein he actually had used the trash chute at 3.15am. One hell of a coincidence, sure. But that's all it could have been, right? First of all, suits don't just walk out of closets and stand by windows. Second of all, it was right there in the closet. Coincidences happen, Jack thought. A couple of hours later, Jack was unpacking the last of his things. There was a knock on the door, and Jack answered it to find Al holding a section of beaded chain and tin snips. Thanks for coming by, Jack said. That's a quick fix, buddy. I'll be right out of your way. Sure thing. Al slowed as he walked by the closet door on the way to the bathroom. He appeared to want to look inside, but stopped himself. 
the two of them met eyes. So, you sold a suit, Al said. Of course he had, they'd already discussed it. Why so mysterious about it, if you don't mind me asking? Al gestured as though to brush it off. Nah, nothing mysterious, he said. Like I said, buddy, you just leave it be. But why? Al went to the bathroom and lifted the lid off of the toilet tank. Was he trying to ignore him? Jack wouldn't have it. He opened the closet and unhooked the suit. Displaying it like a haberdasher, he carried it to the bathroom and cleared his throat so Al would look. He did, with eyes suddenly wide. What are you doing with that? He asked. Didn't I tell you to leave it be? I don't see the harm in it. Tell me what you know about it. Why not just leave it be? Why are you so insistent that I leave it alone? Is there something about this thing I should know? Al sighed. It was pretty clear Jack wasn't letting this go. Look, I don't want to freak you out, buddy. It's a strange thing at all. You're not gonna... <sighs> You're not gonna freak me out, Jack said. I am not a kid. I just want to know what the big deal is. Al set down the tin snips and held up his hands in supplication. Fine, he said. Do you want to know, buddy? Artesia. Creakily, the old man sat down on the edge of the bathtub. He regarded the suit in Jack's hands as something fundamentally offensive. It's been here as long as I have, he said. Everyone who ever lived in this room wanted to get rid of it. They'd leave it by the door, throw it out with the trash, whatever. But every time, it'd end up right back in the closet, or it buys itself. Don't no one knows the hows or whys of it. Jack paused. That's impossible. Ah, you think, Al said. But it's the truth. That's why I told you to leave it alone. Save you the trouble of getting spooked when you do the same thing. It's hard enough getting tenants in the old place. And once they get spooked, they all would run out on me. Jack searched Al's face for signs he was joking, but there were none. He glanced at the suit in his arms, then at the window where he'd imagined it standing in a dream. Then, for the first time, he noticed the empty beer bottle sitting on the windowsill the one he'd put there before going back to bed. I can't believe it. It really happened. Al seemed to pick up on Jack's inner monologue. You already tried getting rid of it, didn't you? Jack looked back at Al. After a pause, he said, It was me at the trash chute last night. Al let out a little chuckle, shook his head. People tend to be afraid of what they don't understand. But there's no need to be afraid. That suit belongs in the closet. All he gots to do is leave it there. I guess it just kind of gave me the creeps, Jack said. Oh, I hear you, buddy boy. But the last thing either of us needs to be thinking about is an old suit. So, why don't you just hang it back up and we'll both put it out of our minds? Eh? From now on, just think of it as part of the woodwork. Fair enough. Jack nodded. He returned to the closet and hung the suit back on the rod. It seemed to watch him as he closed the door. Part of the woodwork, he reminded himself. Al fixed the toilet and repositioned the lid. They shook hands and Al left. With that, Jack returned to unpacking. He put on the bedclothes, finished setting up his entertainment center, and unpacked the rest of his toiletries. The suit crept into his mind from time to time, 
but he forced the thoughts away. Just part of the woodwork. Don't bother the suit, and the suit won't bother you. Jack woke in the night to freezing cold. The drapes around the window were billowing in the wind. Had he left it open last night? It was freezing outside. Why would he have opened it in the first place? He threw the covers off, but stopped in his tracks. It was the suit again. It was standing by the side of the bed, not facing the window. This time, it was facing him. I'm not drunk. I'm not dreaming. I am not hallucinating. So what now? What do you want from me? He whispered. At first, nothing happened. But then, a kind of airy relaxation seemed to come over the suit, almost like it responded to his voice. What do you want? He asked again. It felt awkward, talking to something he didn't quite believe himself, but again, the suit appeared to respond. The shoulders slumped a bit. The cuffs ruffled. Is there something you want from me? The suit relaxed even more now. Where it had been mannequin stiff a minute ago, it now seemed outsized on something smaller. Gently, it began to drift. The arms folded inward. The pants folded lengthwise, then bent at the knees. While Jack sat trembling, the suit folded neatly, all by itself. Then it drifted slowly onto his lap. Jack didn't move. Moments later, the window began to close, the curtain relaxing on their rods. After that, everything was still. Jack checked his watch. It was 3.21 a.m. Jack looked down at the suit, unsure what to do next. The way it had presented itself to him seemed more like a gift than a threat. Was that what it wanted? This ghost? Spirit? Whatever? To give him the suit? Or was he supposed to do something with it? Put it on? The suit was roughly his size. But what would happen if he put on a haunted outfit? Still, he felt distinctly that this was what it wanted him to do. But why? Should I call Owl? He checked his watch again. Mm, bad idea. But there was surely no getting back to sleep tonight. He carried the suit to the table and popped the cap off a beer and sat drinking. He kept an eye around the room for more ghostly evidence, but it was just him in the suit. A few beers later, his nerves were suitably settled. He stared at the suit, wondering what to do. All right, he said to the empty room, although he knew it wasn't truly empty. With the subtle sensation of being watched, he dropped his shorts. He unbuttoned the pants and slipped them on. He stood and looked down at them. They fit just right, even without a belt. Then he took the jacket, slipped it on and buttoned it up. He looked in the dressing mirror. Not bad, he thought. So, what now? He waited for a minute, but nothing happened. Stillness in the room. Nothing ghostly. Nothing revelatory. Starting to unbutton the jacket, he glanced back in the mirror. Well, that's weird. 
the reflection in the mirror was somehow brighter than the room itself. In the window behind him, the setting sun cast an orange glow. He turned around, but the night was black as ever. Back in the mirror, it looked more like late evening. So vain, Charlie. When he turned again, the whole room looked like it did in the mirror. There was a woman there, an attractive brunette in an evening gown. She looked set to go out in the town. So did he, he realized. I'm so happy you came, darling. The woman embraced him, a soft waft of perfume. He embraced her back, but not of his own doing. He realized he wasn't in control. And the room, he noticed, was nothing like it had been. It looked newer, bright and clean. Wallpaper in place of the old drab paint. Gaudy carpeting over the wide wooden planks. No one happier than me, Doris. I'm the luckiest man alive tonight. The words came out in an unfamiliar voice. It wasn't he who had spoken them. He was inside this man, this Charlie, wearing the same suit. He was just going along for the ride. You just might be, she said. She kissed him. He kissed her back, deeply and passionately. He felt everything. He just wasn't doing it. How long do we have? Charlie asked. I want to cherish every moment. The bastard won't be back until Saturday. I want you with me every moment until then. If he hits you again, Doris, even once. The minute the insurance money comes in, I'll divorce the bastard. Then, you'll have me all to yourself. No more sneaking around ever again. I can't stand how he hurts you. How could anyone hurt you? She caressed his face. It won't be long, darling. I promise. Suddenly, there was a ruckus out in the hallway. Both she and Charlie turned their heads. When their eyes met again, there was terror in Doris's face. No, she said. The door crashed open. There was a man in the doorway. A brawny, mustachioed brute in slacks and an undershirt. A little drool in the corner of his mouth. A familiar face. Just much, much younger. It was Al. I knew it, he growled. Al, Doris said. It's not what it looks like. He rushed her. Charlie got between them and Al caught him on the chin with a vicious punch. Jack felt every bit of it. Felt his knees go weak. Heard his ears ringing. You're drunk, Al! Shut up, you cheating tramp! Who are? Al's meaty palm connected with Doris's face with a sound like a thunderclap. Something wet splattered Charlie's face, and he knew immediately it was blood. Doris collapsed bonelessly on the carpet. And you there, buddy boy. Charlie got his bearings and threw a punch of his own. Al ducked it. He countered with a hook to the ribs, then a brutal cross to the side of his head. Charlie's face hit the floor, and the world went dark. Jack woke up to muffled sobs. Whore. Filthy whore. He turned his head. Doris was prone. 
her face buried in the carpet, her dress torn off and thrown aside, Pal on top of her, his pants around his knees, his forearm on the back of her neck. Get off of her, Charlie groaned. Aye, if it ain't sleeping beauty, oh, I'll be getting off your little girlfriend soon as I'm done with her. Charlie struggled, but he couldn't move. His wrists and ankles were bound with torn strips of Doris's dress. You son of a bitch! You'll never get away with this! Al only humped more furiously, grinding his forearm harder into the back of Doris's neck. A few last thrusts, and he ceased his assault. He pushed himself off her and got to his feet and buckled his pants. Then, he wound up a foot and kicked her hard in the side. <laughs> Get away with what now? Al asked, making love to my own wife. I haven't even gotten started with you yet, buddy. Just leave her alone. Please, Al. Grinning, Al walked to the kitchen area. From a drawer, he extracted a large rolling pin. He weighed it in his hand, gripped it by a handle, and swung it like a bat. Jack's heart and Charlie's heart were one, racing in his chest. Oh, I'll leave the boat you alone. Don't you worry about it, buddy. Alone in a goddamn hole. Please, Al. Don't do anything you're going to regret. Regret? He turned to look at his wife, battered and bleeding on the carpet. Thanks she regretted all the running around she's been doing. Not until tonight she didn't. I'll bet she regrets it now, though. <laughs> Don't you think? Buddy boy... I know what you do to her, Charlie said. I see the cuts, the bruises. How can you blame her for trying to get away from you? She's my property! Al brought the rolling pin down in the middle of her back with a sickening thump. Doris screamed. The blow seemed to leave an artificial arch where there wasn't one before. Stop, Al! He brought it down again this time on her right shoulder, then again on her left. With each blow, her body was thrown into unnatural contortions. The final blow, the hardest of them all, sunk into the back of her head. Their marriage, along with her agonies, promptly brought to a close. Oh, God. Oh, God, Doris. Al straightened up, his eyes full of blue insanity. He turned his attention to Charlie. Till death do us part. Right, buddy. Guess that about does it. You murdered her. Oh, you got it all wrong there, buddy. You murdered her. You killed the bitch when you decided to mess with another man's property. And look at what you got yourself into. Now you've gone and killed yourself, too. Charlie didn't even have time to protest. The rolling pin landed on his back. Vertebrae crushed. Again on his ribs. Again on his shoulder. His knees. His elbows. Jack being pummeled. Crushed. 
Only when the final blow came was he delivered from the agony. He saw white, then red, then black. When he woke again, the pain was gone. He was in the trunk of a moving car, a muffled tune playing over the radio. He smelled excrement, blood. He felt the car turn, then the rumble of gravel underneath. Soon, it came to a stop. Momentarily, the trunk creaked open. A clear night sky and Al's wild eyes. Enjoy the ride, buddy boy. Charlie didn't answer. He couldn't answer. Jack knew why. Charlie was dead. Jack was alive in sight of him. But Charlie... Charlie was dead. So was Doris. Al seized him by the lapels of his jacket and dragged him out of the trunk, dumped him on the ground. He landed face up. He could make out the car by the back of it. An early 60s Chevy Impala. Al pulled out Doris and dumped her next to him. He just stood there a minute, chest heaving, looking crazily about. He wiped his forehead with the back of his sleeve. Ladies first. You don't mind, do you, buddy boy? Huh. Al stepped out of Jack's field of vision. He heard Doris's body dragging through the gravel. Dragging. Quieter. Gone. When Al came back, the moon was high in the sky. Sorry to keep you waiting, buddy boy. How Jack wanted to answer him. He'd never felt so helpless. Not once in his life. Al lifted his legs and started to drag him. Charlie's head lulled, giving him a different view of his surroundings. Behind the trees to the left, he thought he recognized something. The bulletin board. I think I know where we are. As Al dragged him further along, he tried to picture from the perspective of his apartment window where they might be headed. The bulletin board was near the edge of town. The old meat plant was far off to the left. Meanwhile, they were going into the woods. Charlie's head hit something in the ground and turned to the right, giving Jack a different view. Now he could see the blinking red light of the radio tower. The radio tower off to the right. The small patch of woods. Where must be? A glimpse of the picnic area confirmed it. Gilbert Park. Ah, you should have brought your bait and trunks, buddy boy. Shame about that nice suit. Gilbert Lake. He killed his wife, killed this guy, and dumped them in Gilbert Lake. 35 years ago. And the suit. It's Charlie. He's been trying to tell me what happened. Trying to... With the revelation, Jack felt himself slipping away. The last things he heard were the gentle lapping of water against the bank. Heavy chains on the floor of the bone. Some muffled swear, followed by a comment on Doris's weight. But from all to follow, he'd be spared. He found himself back in front of the mirror in his dark and dingy apartment. Present day, he unbuttoned the jacket, slipped out of it, let the pants drop to the floor. He turned from the mirror, looked at the spot of the floor where 35 years ago Doris and Charlie were murdered. 
they could still see Al on top of Doris, raping her, beating her to death before his own eyes. Even worse, he could still feel the rolling pin crashing into his own back, his own ribs, his own skull. By proxy, Al had killed him too, and he'd gotten away with all of it. Gritting his teeth, Jack picked up the phone and started calling the police. But he stopped. What would he tell them? How could he prove it? There were two bodies in Gilbert Lake. There was no doubt in Jack's mind, but buried in 35 years of silt and sediment. Meanwhile, if he told the cops the truth, they'd throw him in the loony bin. So, what was he supposed to do? He checked his watch. 3.30 a.m. The whole thing had taken only minutes. He had truly been transported to another time. All the while, the murderer was sleeping soundly downstairs without a care in the world. Sleeping soundly. Having not only murdered Doris and Charlie, but also murdered him. Fuck this! Enraged, Jack stormed out into the hall, went to the trash chute, and began slamming the door. Bang, bang, bang. He slammed the door over and over, slammed it until he heard the footsteps in the stairwell, kept slamming until he saw the murderer's silhouette in the moonlit window at the end of the hallway. Jack, are you out of your mind? I know what you did, Jack said, leveling a finger at the man. What are you talking about? Jack took a few steps toward him. You beat them to death. You dumped them in the lake. By now, a couple of other tenants were standing in their doorways. It appeared none of them dared to interfere. Charlie and Doris, Jack went on. I know everything. I felt everything. The rolling pin, the Chevy Impala. I know where the bodies are, Al. The jig is up. Al's chest was rising and falling rapidly. His face, though, had turned from despondent to defeated. The suit, huh? Charlie's suit, Jack said. It showed me. It showed me everything. A pause. The tenants stood wide eyes in their doorways. Al looked down. Well, I'll be damned, he said. I should have known that bastard could do more than just reappear. Hell, I'd have kept that room myself if I knew it. Damn suit just gave me the creeps. How could you have done that? You murdered them, Al. You got no idea what you put me through, Jack. The cheating, the running around. I was just so angry. You beat her, Jack said. You beat her. You raped her. And you killed her! And I can prove it! It's over, buddy boy. Al was pacing the end of the hallway. You know, after 35 years, you'd think you're pretty much home free. <laughs> he chuckled ironically. But a fellow my age ain't exactly fit for prison. Another door opened then. At least five sets of eyes on Al now. Jack was grateful for them. In case the desperate old man decided to try something... Shouldn't complain, though, Al continued. I had a good run while it lasted. 
There's just one more thing you need to know. Something I'm sure old Charlie didn't tell you. What's that? Asked Jack. Toilet chains are on my desk. You'll help yourself. With that, the old man turned and ran for the window. Stop! Shouted Jack. But it was too late. He crashed through the glass head first. When Jack reached the window, he saw the broken, writhing figure five floors below. Blood gathering in a pool around him, his arms and legs broken and bent at odd angles. He remembered the way Doris had looked after he'd beaten her. Thirty-five years it took, but Al had proved Charlie right. In the end, he would regret it. It took Al two hours to die, but die he did. With no family or relatives to vouch for him, his body ended up in a cemetery for the unclaimed. Old transgressions buried forever. All set up in the apartment now, Jack popped a beer and sat on the couch. The suit was hanging back in the closet where it belonged. He could get rid of it if he wanted to, he knew. With Charlie's soul at rest, there'd be no reason for it to come back again. It was alright, though. The suit no longer gave him the creeps. No more walking around the apartment at night, bedside visits, etc. He'd even had it cleaned. History aside, after all, it was a pretty nice suit. Some suits just begged to be worn, Jack thought. I hope you enjoyed The Black Suit, as written by Jeff Sturdivant and performed by Jason Hill. If you enjoyed that tale, check out the author's collection of tales in both written and audiobook formats, available now on Amazon.com or at FlexFiction.com. Or check out his other tales performed by the members of our team at the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, including the unforgettable tales Return to the Dirt and my best customer performed by paul j mcsorley if you'd like to hear more of our good friend jason hill check out the horror hill podcast now in its second season and available on our youtube channel and wherever podcasts can be found up next we've got a third and final dose of the dreadful courtesy of author derek hawk as performed by 2019 evil idol voice acting competition frontrunner eric peabody in it, a man recalls the moment when a leisurely walk in the woods transformed into the most nightmarish day of his life, leaving him lucky to be alive. Without further ado, I present to you, I Was Hunted by Killer Bees. The invasion began in 1985 or so we were told. The headlines immediately caught our attention. Killer bees found on southern border. These were the type of things that sparked the imagination of every child. It filled our heads with images of terrifying attacks and narrow, heroic escapes from swarms of deadly bees. It was right out of a scene typically seen in every 80s action movie. But, like everything else, 
the killer bees didn't live up to all of the hype. They weren't some mutant insect birthed from man's reckless lack of respect for nature and now must face the lethal and sometimes fatal consequences of said actions. No, that was not the case. The killer bees were nothing more than a byproduct of a dull experiment to create a crossbreed species of bee capable of producing more significant quantities of honey. Instead, what they got was a very pissed-off little bug. A bug with an attitude. For what it's worth, the name was still pretty cool, and no one could deny they weren't a badass little bumblebee. The news sensationalized their rapid progress from the southern border just enough to hold our interest. Now, some of the reporting was concerning at times, but in reality, nowhere near the countdown to doomsday as they implied. No, they weren't going to plunge the world into some futuristic post-apocalyptic world where you made your way through the wasteland spraying fire from a flamethrower to fend off swarms of ravenous insects. Almost nothing like that would ever come to pass. It was those type of scenarios most likely reenacted in countless backyards in the imagination of numerous children. Until then, the local news kept our interest high in the real world. Aside from the cool name, the aggressiveness of these bugs impressed us, especially when we learned of their ability to repeatedly sting you over and over again. Everyone knows that an ordinary bee can only sting you once. When a honeybee stings a person, its barbed stinger is pulled out of its body, disemboweling and killing the bee in the process. At first, there were the rumors. Everyone was talking about it. To this day, I don't know if it really happened, but word spread fast about the dead puppy they found underneath one of the new school portable buildings. They said it had been stung to death. I do remember seeing a little stray beagle mix hanging around the neighborhood. I saw him not too long ago. He was a cute little puppy. It wasn't long before stories started floating around of attacks on people. There was the boy who unknowingly wandered too close to their territory while mowing the lawn, or the immigrant worker who disturbed a hive with his tractor. We paid little attention to them and saw them only as stories one would tell over a campfire or on a sleepover. It was a Saturday afternoon. The weather was overcast with intermittent drizzling on a slightly chilly and dreary day. I was hanging out with my cousin for the day, who was pretty much my best friend at that time. His folks worked on Saturdays, leaving us to lounge around the house alone. I wouldn't quite say that this was like any other weekend. It wasn't. It was the most boring weekend to have ever existed. There was nothing on TV, no movies to rent, no one around to take us anywhere even though it didn't really matter. We didn't have any money to blow. So, there was only one thing to do for broke kids. We could go into the creek. Behind my cousin's house was a wooded area of large trees and thick brush separated by a narrow but deep and rocky creek. Back then, the bed of the creek was full of life, with fish and crawdads, frogs and turtles. Today, it's more of a sewer line than anything else, 
but back then it was clean and bright. It separated my cousin's backyard from this amazing little boy's fantasy land. In those days, the creek served many purposes. For the older kids, it was an ideal spot to light up and get high. To the younger kids, it was a playground of endless wonderment only limited by our imagination. However, it had its dark secrets. It had a past filled with things best forgotten. Nevertheless, whether the stories were real or not, we all knew there were parts of the creek where you could be taken by those you were not supposed to take candy from. But we didn't concern ourselves with matters such as that. Today, the relief of this oppressive boredom took priority. We took a random path in the brush. It was deathly still, and the shadows were much deeper that cloudy day. The only sound was the dripping of water droplets falling off the canopy of leaves. In spite of dim light under the cover of leaves and branches, the color of nature, the green of the trees and bushes, were vibrant. We followed the winding trail for a while, until we found it. The path ended in a small clearing, and we were standing before a tall, dead tree. Instantly, the bees flying in and out of the tree's hollow caught our attention. I and my cousin looked at each other, and a dimmed light bulb went off in our heads simultaneously. It was obvious we were thinking the same thing. Let's get us some honey. Now, we weren't the brightest of kids. In our heads, we thought, if we could get to it, we could pull out thick, dripping, golden honey just like Winnie the Pooh did in every cartoon. Quickly, we started looking for something to stick into the hollow of the dead tree. We didn't have to look for long before we came across a long tree branch lying on the forest's floor. We lifted the tree branch over our heads and roughly shoved it into the hole. We pulled it out, hoping we would see that beautiful honey dripping from off the branch's tip, just like the type of honey you could buy in the grocery store. We only had time to do this a couple more times before it happened. Does anyone remember that old comedy show? The one where they had this bit where someone was doing something stupid, and at the end, the scene would freeze and the voice of Morgan Freeman would say, and this was the moment when they realized they had fucked up. Need I say more? Now, it's funny how memory works. You sometimes don't remember things the same way it happened so long ago. Your mind can change or add things, or even cut portions out. It can embellish the memory, making it much more dramatic than what really happened. That's what I like to tell myself. The swarm burst out of the tree like a puff of black smoke. It moved like it was one single creature in the shape of an arm with long fingers. My cousin, who was standing in front of me, took the brunt of the first wave. I immediately felt hot stings on my forehead, two on my hand, one on my neck, and four on my legs. It's a well-known fact that when a bee's hive is disturbed or threatened, it releases a pheromone into the air which triggers the hive's protectors into a frenzy. 
What is not well known, at least not to two ten-year-old kids, is the area from the pheromone of killer bees can reach a radius of up to one and a half miles. It is also a little-known fact that in a killer beehive, the number of warrior bees is triple the number of a typical honey beehive. We tore out of the clearing as fast as we could. We crashed through the brush, not even bothering with the trail. Branches and thorns tore at our exposed skin while the bees pelted us with stings on our backs. The swarm was relentless in their pursuit and vicious in their bites. Still, we continued to push through the thicket. Nothing could stop their stingers from stabbing into our skin, not even clothes. I kept hearing my cousin scream and wail out in pain not far behind me. Not looking back, I yelled for him to keep running. Don't stop. Don't look back. Keep running. Each time the sharp bee stingers would penetrate my skin, it would inject a tiny amount of venom into my bloodstream. Now, one or two stings are nothing to be concerned about, unless you were allergic. At this time, I was at about 100 stings and counting. It was starting to get hard to breathe. I couldn't catch my breath, not like when sprinting or running. No, it was different. My airways and passages were starting to close off from the swelling. I was gulping for air. Soon, I would no longer be able to breathe. I felt like I was dying. I wanted nothing more than to lie down and close my eyes. The sobbing and screams of agony from my cousin grew distant and faint. Before I realized it, the ground below me disappeared. I was airborne for a moment, flying through the air. I hit the sloped ground hard and tumbled for what seemed like forever. It took a moment for me to realize what happened. I had reached the forest's edge. I had reached the creek and went over the side. It was a portion of the little stream, dry and free from water. I was bloodied and dazed from the fall, and the world was spinning and unfocused. I continued to wheeze and gasp for air. I got to my feet, and my body felt so heavy and hot, yet I was trembling from uncontrollable chills. I looked up at the opposite edge of the creek. It was about a ten-foot climb and angled at a steep inclination. I fell to my knees. There was no need to run. In the condition I was in, there was no way I could climb up the edge of the creek while being stabbed non-stop by poisonous little needles. I was trapped. I waited for the hot pricks of pain to begin again. They never did. At the time, I didn't have an explanation for why they didn't get me down there. Later, I was told once that when a swarm is chasing you, the angry little bugs can only perceive their target in one directional plane. When I suddenly dropped below the ground level, they continued to fly in the same direction after I had fallen into a lower plane. They flew right over me and didn't even realize it. I looked up at the edge of the creek. Any minute now, my cousin would crash through the tree line's edge and fly into the sky from the sudden appearance of the creek. I waited, and I waited. I think there is still a part of me 
that is still waiting. There will always be a part of me that waits. I will never stop waiting. I have never stopped waiting. I hope you enjoyed I Was Hunted by Killer Bees, as written by Derek Hawk and performed by Eric Peabody. Eric is the current frontrunner in the finals of the 2019 Evil Idol voice acting competition, wrapping up in June of this year. If you'd like to hear more of Eric and the other four finalists and listen to the fantastic action from the first three rounds as well, visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Evil Idol in the navigation to see the roster, schedule, and results, and to learn more about this year's amazing contestants. Or visit our YouTube channel of the same name, where you can listen to all 90 entries anytime and join the fray, casting your vote in the final round beginning in June. Thank you for listening and for joining us tonight for this episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Also, as a reminder, take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? ha 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 ha
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.